0: Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Well, the show must go on, and for some reason I've lost my sound here on the uh, audio tracks, So, we're going to go ahead and continue with the show. This show uh, is brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of historycentral.com we we'll also visit with Larry Reed. He's the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And Jim McTegg, former Barron's Washington Bureau chief and author of several books. His two latest are Father Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. It is December the 6th, and on this day in 1961, Syracuse running back Ernie Davis became the first black player to win the Heisman Trophy. College football, of course, top individual award, beating Ohio State fullback Bob Ferguson. Earlier in the day, Davis had met with uh, President John F. Kennedy at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. I never thought I'd be shaking the hand of the President of the United States, he said. As a senior in 1961, Davis rushed for 823 yards, scoring 14 touchdowns. The previous season, he rushed for 877 yards. He was the first pick of the 1962 NFL Draft by Washington, which traded him to the Cleveland Browns for the great Bobby Mitchell. But Davis never played in the NFL. He was diagnosed with leukemia later in the nineteen sixty two and died on may the eighteenth, nineteen sixty three. He was only twenty three years of age. When I look back, I can't call myself unlucky, Davis wrote in the Saturday Evening Post in march nineteen sixty three. My twenty third birthday was december the fourteenth, and all these years I've had more than most people get in a lifetime, said Ernie Davis. Years after Davis's death, Syracuse coach Ben Schwartzwalder Called him the best kid I ever had anything to do with. And he was just like a puppy dog. Friendly and warm and kind, he told Sports Illustrated. He had the spontaneous goodness about him. He radiated enthusiasm. His enthusiasm rubbed off on other kids. Oh, he knocked you down, but he run back and pick you up. He never had a uh, kid so thoughtful and so polite, he said. Ernie Davis, the great Ernie Davis. I'll never forget him being traded for Bobby Mitchell to the Washington Redskins. Uh, Of course, Jimmy Brown should have won the Heisman Trophy, but never did. But uh, Ernie Davis, the first black uh, man to win the Heisman Trophy. Well, of course, the news is out. Former Kansas Senator Robert J. Bob Dole passed away on Sunday at the age of 98, according to a statement by the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. He died early in the morning in his sleep, the statement said. At his death at age 98, he had served the United States of America faithfully for Seventy-nine years. A statement from the Dole family will be released soon. Dole was best known as a Republican nominee for president in 1996, running against incumbent Bill Clinton, who was at the peak of his popularity after moving to the political center. Though Dole lost in a landslide, his warnings that Clinton could not be trusted were later vindicated by the sexual scandal, of course, and other things that uh, led to Clinton's impeachment. He was born in 1923 in a small town of Russell, Kansas, he was a student and athlete at the University of Kansas when World War II broke out. He enlisted a year later in the U.S. Army Reserve Corps and was assigned to active duty in 1943, as a Topeka capital general recalled earlier in the year, rotating around several U.S. camps and attending the Officers' Candidate School at Fort Benning, Georgia. Gold deployed to Italy as a second lieutenant in the Army's 10th Mountain Division in late 1944. But just a few months into the deployment, Dole was, uh, on April 14, 1945, led an assault on Hill 19, 913, I should say, north of Castle de Otto, When the soldiers taking heavy artillery and fire, when he saw a fellow soldier go down, Dole went to help him and pulled him in a manhole. And as he scrambled out, he felt a sharp sting in his shoulder. Dole collapsed on the battlefield. And it was nine hours before medics could evacuate him in the uh, field hospital. He would spend the next two and a half years at the Percy Jones Army Medical Center in Battle Creek, Michigan, in a head-to-hip plaster cast, having lost a kidney and full use of his right arm. He was awarded two Purple Hearts and a Bronze Star with Oak Leaf Cluster. He would hold a pen in his right hand so that people would not be alarmed by his disability when they met him. He later attended the University of Arizona and transferred back to Kansas, where he graduated with an undergraduate and law degrees from Washburn University in Topeka, 1952. By then, he'd already elected to Kansas State House of Representatives and launched his political career. He served his country for Russell County and won election in the U.S. House for four successive terms in the 60s before running for Senate in 1968. He was re-elected four times there. In 1976, Dole entered presidential politics as the running mate of his incumbent, President Gerald Ford, who lost to Jimmy Carter, He would go on to lead Republicans in the Senate as both majority and minority leader before resigning in 1966 to focus on his ill-fated presidential campaign. He remained involved in politics partly through his second wife, Elizabeth Dole, who represented North Carolina in the U.S. Senate from 2003 to 2009, and partly through his own commentary. Though seen as a distinguished figure, Dole supported uh, Donald Trump, not uncritically, but with admiration for Trump's policies and achievements. 2017, Dole openly praised Trump's first trip to Europe, including his speech in Warsaw on the need to defend Western civilization. During the 2020 presidential election, Dole spoke spoke out in Trump's defense against the Commission on Presidential Debates, saying it was appeared to be biased against the president. He remained widely admired both for his military heroism and for his public service. One of the great Americans never to win the presidency. Truly a great American. Goes down with In my mind, one of the great uh, leaders in American politics of all time. Honest and courageous. Bob Dole, dead at age 99. After a rare, somewhat acceptable jobs report in October, Bidenomics is back to disappointing. U.S. job growth significantly undershot expectations in November, suggesting the difficulty in attracting new workers is weighing on the labor market's recovery from the pandemic even as COVID-19 cases dissipate nationwide. The Labor Department said its monthly payroll report released Friday that payrolls in November rose just 210,000, well below the 550,000 jobs forecast by The economists. The unemployment rate, which is calculated based on the separate survey, dropped more than expected to 4.2%, the lowest level since the pandemic began. However, size of the labor force is still millions of people smaller than the uh, pre-pandemic and those who aren't in the labor force no longer count as unemployed, which makes the lower unemployment rate misleading. There's still about 3.9 million fewer jobs than there were in February before the crisis began with aforementioned uh, brief exception in October this continues a series of misses. Biden's job report in May represented the largest miss since 1998, coming 800000 short of expectations. The figures are so bad, CNBC's anchors had to do a double-take when reporting on the numbers, briefly thinking they had made the report in error. Meanwhile, last month's inflation figures clocked in at a 31-year high. So things aren't going well for Bidenomics right now. By the way, Clinton, uh, the Cato Institute re- released its sixth annual Freedom in 50 States report this week. The index provides an updated ranking of the American states on the basis of how policies promote freedom in the fiscal, regulatory, and personal realms. The index of freedoms in all 50 states show that 50 red states dominate, or show that red states dominate the list for most freedoms, while the blue states, of course, are often at the bottom of the list. Uh, the authors, by the way, define freedom as, we ground our concepts of freedom on the individual rights framework. In our view, individuals should be allowed to dispose of their lives, liberties, and property as they see fit, so long, so long as they do not infringe on the rights of others. To formulate the Freedom in 50 States Index, the Cato Institute looked at three major categories, personal freedoms, physical policies, and regulatory policies pandemic and draconian measures implemented by Governor's Force Cato Institute to add a new section analyzing how states COVID-19 response had affected their freedom since the pandemic began. So here's the lineup, uh, the overall most free. Uh, new Hampshire is number one with Florida coming in second, which both have Republican governors. Tennessee, South Dakota, Nevada, Indiana, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, all considered the most free of the top ten. Only two had Democratic governors: Michigan and Nevada. The worst states for freedom: well, New York, Hawaii, California, New Jersey, Oregon, Maryland, Delaware, Vermont, New, Ham- New Mexico, and Rhode Island. All but two have re- Democrat governors. Vermont and uh, more at Maryland have uh, Republican. Interesting story there, isn't it? Certainly grateful that we have Ron DeSantis as our firewall against the absurd policies being implemented right now in Washington, D.C. All right, coming up, uh, this segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you visit the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is Naples.net. Coming up, uh, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman. He's the founder and publisher of historycentral.com. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. at lulubees.com and stop by Lulubees Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulubees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulubees Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool, rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected into the community and with each other. The Golden Gate Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Tatiana Fortune, Director of the Golden Gate Senior Center. We want to be able to connect you That's org, or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4541. That's
0: 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Hartman Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now, we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. It's a terrific multimedia website for kids of all ages, including you and I. I hope you check it out, HistoryCentral.com. Mark's also written several books. might main, now past presidents. You can find a reference there on HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Always a pleasure, Bob.
1: Thank you, Mark. So uh, we're talking about current global events, as we have for the last, last several years, and a continuing and concerning story is that of what's happening in Ukraine. Maybe you could tell us about it.
2: Absolutely. Uh, United States intelligence is claiming that the Russians will have the forces for and are planning to invade Ukraine in early 2022. Mm. Um, you know, the big question Putin may or may not think he can get away with it. His obvious dream is to reunite the old Soviet Union, and Ukraine is one of the key places. On the other hand, the Ukrainian has a pretty good army at this point there well-trained, and they're very committed to defending their country. And so the question is, will the Russians take the risk both of getting bogged down in a war, for instance, and or what the reaction from the West will be of such an action? Ukraine is not a member of NATO, so the United States and the rest of the NATO allies are not required to come to its defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they'll certainly come to economic and send arms and everything else, and, you know, we were unknown. So it's a real potential flashpoint, and again, because no one really knows what Putin wants, so that's really the key.
1: Why now, Mark, do you think?
2: I think, look, there's, there's, it, there's nothing specific about now other than the fact, that remember, he took Crimea about five years ago. He's he's slowly but surely been expanding And this is his next step. I don't think there's anything specific about now more than any other time. Um, You know, he sees general weakness of the United States that's been going on for since um, I'll say since Obama, certainly through Obama through Trump, and weakness in the sense of disengagement from the world to to some extent. And so, you know, he's he's someone who takes advantages of opportunities. Whether or not this is a real opportunity or not, that's unclear at the moment.
1: Uh, what do you think so, the downside is for uh, Russia? In other words, uh, do you think he's uh, doing a calculation based on the response from the rest of the world? Do you think that, uh, how much is he willing to risk, do you think?
2: That's an interesting question. Look, uh, his hope would be, you know, a lightning strike, capture all of Ukraine in four days, and, you know, the world will be faced with a fait accompli. And, you know, sometimes people think they can accomplish that. You know, I mean, listen, Hitler was right. He was able to accomplish that with Poland huh. and to a greater extent with France and the low countries as well. Now, Ukraine may be a little bit harder for the Russians to to successfully conquer so quickly. Like I said, the, the Ukrainian army is at this point um, well, um, well-equipped, relatively speaking, and has trained uh, extensively um, and is committed to their own independence. So... You know, often wars are started by miscalculation. Yeah, I think Putin, if he goes ahead, is going to assume he can do this really quickly. The world is going to say no, 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 put some sanctions on, etc. But you know, after a certain period of time, the world will have a new, have to deal with a new fait accompli. Um, but again, he could lose that bet if the Ukrainians manage to turn this into a, a war of attrition.
1: Now, uh, the president apparently has a Zoom meeting planned uh, with uh, Putin. Uh, what do you think uh, he stands on this entire issue?
2: Look, he stands very much in saying that the United States uh, will support Ukraine. Um, the question is, is the United States willing to go to war with Russia or over Ukraine? Now, if it was Poland, the United States would have to because Poland is a member of NATO. But Ukraine is not a member of NATO, so the United States isn't required to. Uh, so I don't really have the answer to that question, frankly. Mm-hmm. I think Biden's stance is going to be to make Putin think that he might take military action. In other words, that's, that's really the key. In in any of these situations, it's not what you'll actually do, but it's what your enemy perceives you will do. And uh, the more they perceive that the United States uh, will be willing to come to Ukraine's aid, the less likely Putin is to take the risk. Yeah, this is always this is always the problem with deterrence in any given situation. Um, it depends on what people perceive. And I repeat what I said before. The Korean War began because Dean Ashton gave a speech that stated these are the following areas of the zone of American uh, influence, et cetera, and he did not mention South Korea. So the Russians said, okay, South Korea is not within that area. We can attack that and not get the United States involved.
1: Hmm. So, uh, what do you think the commitment might be for the rest of the NATO members and and for uh, the rest of the world, the world leaders, right now after post Afghanistan?
2: It's hard to know. Again, um, you know, Ukraine is not Afghanistan. It's not you know three, four thousand miles away from Europe or ten thousand miles away from the United States. Um, so, you know, I think the the NATO and the United States will do everything short of going to war with Russia over this. And so that's always, you know, that's always a, a difficult line to, ca- to, yeah. to follow, obviously.
1: So and interesting. Easy, so easy,
2: easier, easier said than done. That's why deterrence is the best um, methodology in any of these cases. I hope you're not tested. Yeah,
1: apparently there's sixty seventy thousand 70,000 troops right now on the border, Russian troops, and uh, anticipating as many as 175,000. So it sounds like he's really... He's prepared to uh, to go to war. Whether, in fact, he will uh, be a, a separate question. I'm sure we'll find out. I guess after January first.
2: Yes, that seems to be the case. Yeah. Well, they're going to war in the winter in that part of the world is a strange thing to do. But yeah. okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, let's move to what's happening in Iran. Apparently, uh, obstreperous the leaders there, with regard yeah. to the nuclear deal. Right. So,
2: I mean, I think I predicted that last week when we spoke that yeah. the Iranians seem uninterested in making any concessions. What they actually did was walk back all the concessions they had made in the previous rounds of negotiations, and then ask for more. Um, is this a negotiating tactic? It could be. They're really Persians are known for their excellent haggling skills. Let's put it that way. Um, on the other hand, it's more and more apparent that the that the Iranians are going forward with their nuclear program. And um, daring the world to do anything about it, mm-hmm. so therein lies you know again another ch- challenge you know the great disaster pulling out of the accord has put put us into a terrible situation, put both the United States and Israel into this box where the Iranians have made a huge amount of progress, and you know and now with, with a harder line if it's possible a harder line government, they seem uninterested in reaching a deal so where where anything goes at this point is really unknown. Um, it seems they may have overplayed their hands so much so that even the Chinese and the Russians are angry at them. Mm -hmm. And that would be the only good outcome. If the Chinese and the Russians are willing to impose sanctions, then sanctions could actually be effective. We'll have to see. Yeah, I mean, neither of them, China nor Russia, really want the Iranians to have have the bomb. They're just interested in somebody else causing trouble for the United States.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So, what do you what do you think next steps might be in, in Iran? I mean, we've uh, certainly there's a number of players in this, not only Russia and China, but also, of course, Israel.
2: Well, I think we'll have to see whether the Iranians come back with a with a much better and different proposal or not. If they, if they do not, that means they do not want a deal. And then the question is, what is the United States and the rest of the world going to do? Uh, again. Without going to war with the Iranians, it's going to be very difficult to stop their program. And, you know, I'm not sure at all that the United States or the American people want to go to war with Iran, Yeah. even though, you know, this would have been the right war as opposed to Iraq, which was the wrong war. But that's a different story altogether. Mm. Um, So it's a very difficult situation because nobody wants to see the Iranians having having the bomb. Um, And certainly Israel doesn't want to see the Iranians having the bomb. So the question becomes... Is it too late to stop them? And what can you do at this point in the process?
1: And And these are not easy answers at this point. Yeah, and I think underlying this, uh, undergirding the entire process, is the fact that these are not rational players in the sense that they're committed to uh, religious ideology, which uh, could include just (laughs) destroying all of life for the purpose of serving knowledge.
2: interestingly enough, I heard an interesting analysis, and I think there's probably a lot of truth in that, in that as long as they're in power, they're rational actors in the sense they want to stay in power, and they won't do anything that would jeopardize their power, including having their country annihilated from a second strike mm. from Israel or somebody else. Mm. The, the, the most dangerous scenario is if they're on the brink of losing power. Mm. And what might they do in those circumstances? Mm. And, and that's really the most dangerous situation one can think of, is that if the Ayatollahs are on the verge of losing power, what would they, what could they be capable of doing? in order to maintain power or else to reach their, you know, their dreams before they can no longer do
1: it. So we've, we've talked about this a number of times, but how serious is the threat from within, as opposed to, for example, the other countries that we've talked about?
2: In terms of Iran? Yeah. Uh, the Iranians, look, they've never successfully come against the, the Ayatollahs. I mean, they've tried, but it's never really gone anywhere. It's, again, you know, one of the problems with these religious states is when you have the key to heaven, Whose heaven it might be, mm-hmm. it's really tough to go against you. And so enough people want that, you know, want the key to heaven, so it's very hard to build enough opposition yeah. to those holding that very, very special key.
1: Yeah. So, Mark, let's uh, let's move to Syria. What's happening in Syria now?
2: Well, Syria, by the way, is a sort of related to Iran, which is an interesting thing. It, it seems it's not confirmed yet, but it seems last night I think it was. Um, the American base in Syria was attacked by Iranian missiles. Hmm. So that's an interesting question, and the question is, what's the United States going to do to respond? Is it going to respond? You know, again, if the if the nuclear ta- if the nuclear agreement is off the table for the moment, that sort of frees up American actions a little bit more. So, um, but again, you know, do, do the American people want to get involved in a shooting war with Iran and Syria? I don't have an answer to that question. Um, You know, my guess is the answer would be probably not. Which again gives the Iranians the upper hand because if they think their enemies does does not do not have the ability to respond, who knows what can happen? So there, 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 in lies all the conundrums again and again and again.
1: Yeah. So, can you assess the the strength of the Syrian military force, or for the opposition, or what they're capable of achieving?
2: Who are we talking about now? There's, there's so many players in Syria right now. So the Syrian army uh, recaptured almost all of, its, all of the country, but not all of it, thanks to the help of the Russians. Mm-hmm. The Syrian army is still not particularly strong, but they have the Russian backing, and they managed to gain control of all the major cities, mm. except for a, a small area in this northeast corner of Syria, um, which the rebels still hold and which are the Americans have a small number of forces there to help the rebels, so to speak. And then there's, of course, um, the Islamic State, which doesn't really exist, but still has pockets there as well. So a lot of confusion at this point. Um, And it's really a question of who has the will to do what. So far, Assad has shown that he has the will to kill as many of his own people as he wants, and he can do whatever he wants to maintain power, and that's what we've seen happen.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Well, we know he has chemical warfare. I just was not certain what he might have in terms of missiles and other types of uh, response to uh, Iranian threats. Kind of
2: interesting. Well, well, who's who's Syria and Iran are are allies at the moment? Hmm. Don't uh, they? They're not going to respond. The United States is going to respond because the United States has troops in Syria, which the Syrian government is not happy about. But we're not removing them. So, but they've been coming under Iranian attack.
1: Okay, so let's, uh, let's move to Taiwan then, the, the continuing threat of China against Taiwan. The continuing
2: threat there, the Chinese continuously have been doing exercises against, uh, against Taiwan. Is there, are these exercises real exercises? Are they just tests to see how good the Taiwanese defense is? Again, one of those things that we do not know what, what's in the minds of the Chinese leader. I doubt he's willing to go over and physically attack Taiwan. The Taiwanese are not going to go under easily. Um, Taiwan has no um, has no ability really to defeat China on the other hand you know the Chinese and the Taiwanese do not share a land border which makes it very difficult for a military victory for them to Chinese to to overcome they don't have the experience that the United States developed uh, during World War II of amphibious landings you know remember that when we landed at D-Day that was after Dozens and dozens of experiences, some successful and some big failures, in the Pacific, particularly, but also in North Africa and Italy and Sicily.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's not something you, you know, it's not something you learn in a day. Let's put it that way.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The same goes, by the way, for the Chinese aircraft carriers. They have no experience in operating aircraft carriers, and more importantly, in operating planes off aircraft carriers. Uh, you know, the United States developed that experience going back to the 1920s. Mm-hmm. And these are things that you just don't acquire in a moment, let's put it that way. Mm. And, you know, it goes back to what they say about any individual that, you know, it requires 10,000 hours of, of study, of training, or whatever it is, to become really good at something. Well, I don't know how many hours of operating an aircraft carrier it takes, but it's not not trivial.
1: Yeah. I think that was from Outliers. I was sending it from Malcolm... Uh Gladwell's yes, correct. Uh, books. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So uh, how prepared is Taiwan uh, to defend itself?
2: It has, you know, it's well-equipped. It has a modern army, a modern air force. It's been limited to some extent because countries are afraid to sell Taiwan arms because the Chinese, of course, go crazy every time a country sells Taiwan arms, but it can afford whatever it needs because I mean, Taiwan is a very rich country. Uh, the people are certainly committed to their independence. But, you know, you're dealing with a 40 million versus a billion people. It's not an easy, you know, calculation.
1: Yeah. Mark, let's, uh, let's, if we can then, let's just uh, wind up our discussion about uh, what's happening with the uh, Omicron uh, threat with regard to... Okay, so
2: the the Omicron, so here's what's going on with Omicron. It is slowly spreading to different parts of, of the world at this point. It seems very clear that it's more contagious than anything before it numbers have been increasing very rapidly both in South Africa and in England where it seems to have taken a serious uh, taken hold it's not at all clear yet um, it seems that the um, by the small numbers so far people who are vaccinated are less likely to get it but not 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 they're not going to get it at all in other words the the um, the vaccine seem to provide us some form of protection but not in the same extent the previous vaccines do. The one thing we do not know, and I stress we do not know, and we probably won't know until probably the end of this week we'll start to get an indication, is how serious disease Omicron provides. In other words, I've seen headlines in press, Omicron hasn't killed anyone yet.
1: All right, so have I. Guess
2: what? What?
1: So have I. I've also seen that it's a, it's a mutation off of the common cold. In other words, it's... Uh, no,
2: but that was one, one argument that was made. I don't know that it's true, and I saw that article as well. Yeah. Remember two things. Both hospitalizations and death are uh, lagging indicators. Mm-hmm. People don't get seriously sick generally from corona until a week to 10 days after they first get it. So people, you know, we, we've identified people with... With Omicron, just about a, uh, ten days ago, just uh, give or take. So just about now would be people would people be seriously getting hurt, getting sick, and death usually takes about a month from the time you actually get the corona until you get so sick. I mean, there've been other cases obviously, but generally speaking, it's about a month. Yeah. So the fact that no one has died yet that we know of from the Omicron variant tells us absolutely nothing yet.
1: Howard, so I, I think I think what we know is it's now spread to about 38 countries am I correct about that and right uh,
2: that, some number like that and it's it's spreading rapidly both of course in South Africa and in Great Britain I'm not sure how rapidly it's spreading in other countries at the moment uh, but based on the British and the South African uh, statistics it seems to spread almost twice as fast as Delta
1: so uh, Europe um, there's still uh, lots of uh, demonstrations going on on the uh, lockdowns. We've seen what's happening in Austria. It's just unbelievable. It's the story of a one person who was locked up, it was Austria, I believe, that uh, she didn't even have a positive test and she ended up being incarcerated for in quarantine, forced quarantine for two weeks. So uh, there seems to be a degree of overreaction at this point.
2: Well, there's a strong reaction. Again, look, the, the problem comes down to two things. One, when the hospitals in any given country or state or whatever we're talking about, any given entity become overrun because COVID patients, and particularly non-vaccinated COVID patients, because those are the overwhelming number of hospital cases, then it creates a, a, a real emergency because leave, leaving aside all the people with COVID, it means that people with normal cases, you know, heart attacks, cancer treatments, you name it, all the things we all go, unfortunately have to go to the hospital for, there's no beds for them in ICUs. Right. There's no staff available. So I think more than anything else what's happening in Europe is a result not so much of the number of cases but of the hospitalization in in the Europe some of the European countries hospitals that are not able to keep up and then of course that has a tremendous effect not only on those who with covid but the people the other people in the community as well.
1: Yeah, and and the compound that here in the United States with the fact that we're and now, in the process of laying off or firing people that haven't been tested or haven't uh, received the vaccine, well, I,
2: I will never understand a healthcare worker who doesn't get vaccinated. That's just uh, uh, unknown that I cannot fathom. To be quite honest with
1: you, right? Uh, yet, so, uh, what do they know that we don't know? That's the <laughs> that's the but
2: question. But you know, it's like three percent of them. So I'm sorry, you know, the three percent are just brainwashed. It doesn't make any sense. It's not. The, it's not. The, there are very few doctors. I mean, there are a couple of them here and there, but there very, very few doctors and very few people with any sort of advanced uh, scientific knowledge that aren't getting vaccinated. So, I mean, um, in I, I understand that individual has the right to do whatever they want, but you know, a healthcare worker comes into contact with lots and lots of sick people, and sick people are the people who are most vulnerable. So. I don't get it. I've not gotten it through, throughout this whole period. Well, so. the
1: point the point of, the, of my comment is not whether they're getting it or not, but the fact that it's creating a, a a concern, a critical concern about the ability to care for people. At the same time that we have people that potentially could be coming into the hospital. In other words, hospital... Right.
2: That's that's always the, that's always the case. So, so the solution is they should get the vaccine. Vaccine. That's all. Yeah. Simple solution.
1: <laughs> I think not. I think the solution is to allow people to make their own personal decisions and uh, create... Yeah, they
2: can do whatever they want in their homes. When they come into contact with sick people, they have to... You know, it's, it's required to take a whole series of other vaccines in order to work in hospitals.
1: Yeah. So interesting. Mark uh, Schulman again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, I'm going to encourage you to visit. The website, uh, multimedia website, good for kids of all ages, including you and I, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much. Have a great
2: week, Bob, and all your listeners.
1: You as well. Thank you, Mark. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to visit with Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. I, for the life of me, can have no idea why these commercial breaks are not working. I'm going to try it again, but if you're going to hear silence for the next 60 seconds or so, that's when I'm going to be on the phone getting in touch with our next guest. That'll be Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for uh, Economic Education. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: Golfshire Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot, state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett-Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit GolfShorePlayhouse.org. That's GolfShorePlayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thank you so much for, uh, actually, your patience and <laughs> for waiting us to come pa- back on the show. Uh, the show is brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater. At its very best, you can find out more by visiting the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, going to visit with Jim McTagg. Jim is uh, uh, the author of Two Great Murder Mysteries and the former... Uh, Bureau Chief for Barron's Magazine, so we'll visit with Jim. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education.
3: Okay. We are headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, but our work takes us all over the country and abroad. We focus on young people of high school and college age and endeavor to inspire and educate them in ideas of individual liberty, private property, free enterprise, and personal character. And your listeners can learn a lot more about us from our website, which is FEE, F-E-E dot org, where they'll see fresh daily content, as well as free courses and videos and uh, news of various FEE-related events.
1: Absolutely. Great organization. In fact, I've been to national conferences which were by the way held right down here in florida enjoyed them so much and it was it's so inspiring to see young people of high school and college age gathering together to celebrate liberty and freedom and of course, all young people should what else do they more do they want but freedom, but irrespective uh, that 's not the way our school systems are aligned so again fee dot org is the website f e e dot Larry you wrote uh, a very interesting column about a Supreme Court justice a George Sutherland, you called him a model justice. Maybe you can tell us about it
3: okay, uh, thank you, Bob. George Sutherland was nominated to the u s Supreme Court by President Warren Harding, almost a hundred years ago, and he served uh, well into the um, well through the term of Calvin Coolidge, Harding's successor, and then through uh, Herbert Hoover's time, and then uh, much of Franklin Roosevelt's uh, tenure. Hmm. And uh, he was a a very uh, strong advocate for the Constitution. He thought it was the uh, duty of justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, to read it strictly and to uphold it. Uh, He didn't feel as though it was the job of the court to stretch it until it confessed to powers that uh, the founders never intended for the federal government. And um, as a result, that put him on a collision course frequently with the Roosevelt administration. Mm -hmm. He threw out, uh, along with uh, a majority of other colleagues, uh, much of Roosevelt's New Deal
1: yeah, and uh, of course, it's the interesting observation here, it's so ironic that uh, we'd highlighted justice because they upheld the Constitution. <laughs> it's actually yeah. the job of all of them, but it's not always the case, unfortunately. And No, uh,
3: that's that's right. There are some justices that sit on the court right now, I think, that are uh, pretty reliable votes for more government, uh, whether the Constitution would warrant it or not.
1: right. Well it would just be so nice, to, and I think Clarence Thomas is so clearly dedicated uh, to uh, upholding the Constitution. It's just yes. very refreshing to to see him and to, to hear what he has to say. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about more about George Sutherland and you know how he kind of got to the Supreme Court and uh, some of the decisions that he made.
3: Okay, well, he served in the judiciary back in his native state of Utah. So he was not uh, unknown. He was always thought of by people who knew him as an extremely uh, thoughtful person, uh, a good writer, a good thinker, uh, somebody who uh, really was sort of uh, made for the court before he ever even got there. Um, And uh, in many ways, he was an ideal or a model Supreme Court justice because he really did the job uh, as the founders intended for justices. Uh, to do it, and that is to interpret uh, the law in the light of the constitution, not to uh, uh, make new law themselves from mm-hmm. the bench,
1: yeah, and uh, how did he react to the court packing? In other words, uh, of course, we know that FDR not pleased with how the courts are responding to his uh, new deal. Uh, he wanted to bring in more justices, and of course, that was found to <laughs> not be legal, but uh, do we know anything about how he responded?
3: Well, his response was rather muted, but in public, because he thought that, uh, you know, this was a political matter. But uh, there are reports uh, pretty reliable from friends that privately he was quite disturbed by it, that he thought that uh, this was an attempt to politicize the court, that uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, simply because he didn't like the court's opinions, wanted to uh, turn the judicial branch of government into a rubber stamp for the executive branch. And in Sutherland's view, that was uh, a threat to our form of, form of government and to the Constitution itself. He also believed, uh, and this put him at odds with some things that Roosevelt was doing, uh, that liberty is joined at the hip with character. Uh, he really felt that uh, uh, the most important thing in government was to have people of character. And by that, he, he meant an unhesitating rejection of an impulse to do wrong; those are his words. Liberty and character were two sides of the same coin uh, to, to him, and that one would not last <clears throat> uh, without the other.
1: Yeah, so much. Did you see parallels between uh, uh, what happened uh, during the New Deal and what's going on right now with regard to the?
3: Uh, yes, I do. In terms of New Deal policies of massive expansion of government and spending, and regulation and debt, uh, we certainly are seeing that on a colossal scale today and also the way our politicians behave they they um, are uh, too often are not men and women of solid character they will uh, prevaricate or uh, deceive in order to achieve their political ends i mean perhaps the height of that was when uh, president biden uh, with a straight face declared that his uh, four or five trillion dollar spending package that's still hanging fire in congress although it's been reduced, but when he said that uh, it wasn't going to cost anything. I mean, if, if Sutherland were around today, he would shake his head and say, what? I mean, he, he would say Biden knows better, but um, uh, he's clearly hoping that the American people have been dumbed down enough that they'll buy into it.
1: Yeah, so, so disappointing to uh, see that kind of you – know, the other thing, too, is we're seeing the encroachment on our individual liberties – now with omicron coming on with the uh, new variant of the of the uh, virus so we're already seeing people react to seeing uh, politicians uh, start to put up more lockdowns mandates and clearly seeing this in Europe as well so the the thirst for power is unquenchable
0: it sure
3: is and a lot of the same people who are talking lockdowns and and more requirements of one kind or another to deal with what so far is a, a pretty mild variant of the virus. Uh, they're the ones who also uh, constantly are telling us that, um, you know, government is uh, virtually our savior, that it can do almost anything and do it right, and, and that uh, the answer to almost everything is more of it. Um, they really are after the power more than they are actual results, I'm convinced.
1: Yeah. Again, George Sutherland, uh, he's a Supreme Court justice, uh, and uh, did a great job and a great example, standing out as uh, somebody upholding the Constitution while serving on the Supreme Court. Unfortunately, it's, I see the Peter principle kind of sets in with regard to even su- the Supreme Court, and somehow, some way, people lose sight of what they're supposed to be doing there, but not George Sutherland. You can find, by the way, this uh, column. I believe it's is it uh, on fee? Is it fee. dot org? Uh,
3: no, this one is actually my uh, newspaper column that I write uh, from my little town here in Georgia. But it is on my personal website, which is LawrenceWReed.com.
1: dot com. dot com. Again, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, a great resource for young people, high school or college age. If there's somebody in your life uh, of that age, make sure that they're introduced to it. And take a look at it yourself so you can speak knowledgeably and uh, help young people understand what a valuable resource it is. Larry, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Jim McTagg. Jim is a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, living in the Beltway. He's now moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, writing now. He's written a couple of great murder mysteries. One is uh, Father the Leader, and its sequel is Shake the Money Tree. Really uh, it, interesting and great books. Uh, so we're going to be able to visit with Jim. We're going to do that and more. And by the way, the silence that you can hear, I apologize for that in advance. I don't know why this is happening, but uh, we'll figure it out, and uh, we'll be ready for it tomorrow. So, nevertheless, uh, silence a commercial here, one or the other, and we'll be be back with Jim in just a moment.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show, here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006 and I now have full range of motion in both knees and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. Also brought to you by Choice Social, a new refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app by visiting choicesocial.us. We have with us Jim McTagg, as I mentioned before the break. He's a former Barron's Washington Bureau chief, had his own uh, press pass from the White House. He also has written a couple of great murder mysteries, Shake the Money Tree, then uh, the book, uh, its, its predecessor, Follow the Leader. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
3: Hi, Bob. It's uh, nice to spend a day with you.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure indeed, Jim. So, I know you are very active in the Beltway and probably have uh, some personal knowledge of uh, a gentleman who passed away. He was a great uh, American, and Bob Dole is who I'm speaking of. Uh, any thoughts?
3: Yeah, you know, um, uh, my wife Rachel and I had the privilege to meet Bob Dole at a brunch. At the Army and Navy Club, I think it was in 2019. Mm. And uh, she was de- she was dealing uh, with the onset of Parkinson's. And she, she's young. She's only 63 now. So it, it was an unusual case. And she became weepy. And he uh, Bob Dole and his wife, Elizabeth, were at the next table. And Dole and noticed... And invited Rachel over and asked her what was wrong, and and he managed to cheer her up. He insisted that she take a selfie with him, and he turned her mood around wow. uh, within five minutes. So, I mean, here was a man, here was a man, who was very empathetic. Number one, number two, um, he was aware, situationally aware. You know, we were in a huge uh, dining room with a. Uh, over a hundred people. And yet he was paying attention to what was going on at the uh, surrounding table. So, so, uh, in, right away he, he became a member of uh, my personal favorites uh, list, uh, for being so charitable. Now, having said that he was a horrible presidential candidate. He had a very tough assignment to knock off Bill Clinton yeah. in 1996 as Clinton was seeking his second term, uh, And uh, it was an uphill battle, but uh, uh, Dole didn't really have the charisma or the the, um, enthusiastic uh, energy to pull it off. And, you know, he was beaten. Uh, I think Clinton got 49% of the vote, and Dole got 41% of the vote. And uh, 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 Ross Perot, who ran as a third party candidate, received 8% of the vote. Mm -hmm. So you, you could argue that. Dole would have done better without Ross Perot in the race. But but uh, uh, nevertheless, when you go online now and look at the uh, debates, and I urge everybody to do it. It's like time travel. Uh, you can see how polished and prepared Bill Clinton was for those debates uh, and, and how how Dole was like a um, a salesman who just didn't know how to close the sale. He, w- he would make... He would build an argument and suddenly stop talking mm-hmm. and, and not really deliver uh, a dynamite ending. So, uh, uh, so Bob Dole, again, a, a great American, but not a very good presidential candidate.
1: Well, of course, he, he didn't have the capacity to go in the basement and allow the uh, machine <laughs> to take over the politics and uh, distort the, uh, the reality of the situation, as I think uh, President Biden did. Uh, currently, so he had to deal with the reality he had, and he and he did the best he could. Quite frankly, uh, he was he was not a, a charismatic individual, and certainly against Bill Clinton, he uh, paled by comparison. Uh, but uh, he was in tough circumstances. I mean, Clinton was uh, very very popular at the time of his re- uh, running again for president. Yeah,
3: well, actually, you know, the Republicans thought they had a good shot at unseating the president because two years earlier uh, newt gingrich in congress and and the republicans pulled a massive upset Mm -hmm. and they uh you know they took control of congress and it was the first time that such a massive shift in in congressional power had happened and i forget how many years but it was decades and so uh they sensed that the voters were tired of uh bill clinton and a liberal agenda but they got two things wrong number one uh Ingrich two times shut down the government in uh, battles over uh, taxation and, and the deficit, and that completely turned the public uh, off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the public didn't like that at all. It soured them on the Republican Party. Uh, the second thing was that when the Republicans took over, uh, Bill Clinton, who was a centrist, you know, he, he you, you just can't assume that Democrats Back in in 1996, were anything like the left wing nuts we see today. He wasn't. He was a centrist. He was more of, of a Republican than a Democrat, and he managed to work with the Democratic or the Republican Congress to achieve some uh, incredible uh, economic changes, like uh, welfare to work. You know, you know, uh, he, he, he 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 did something called triangulation. Yeah where he tried to work with the Democrats and the Republicans to arrive at common ground, something which politicians can't do today. So essentially, uh, Clinton changed the Democratic agenda into a uh, quasi-Republican agenda. And when he was running for president in 1996, the economy was doing uh, pretty well. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know, the voters were, were seemed to be happy, and that was a, another reason uh, that was unable to really get traction in that election.
1: Yeah, no, that's no question. But the other thing I'll say is uh, he was not, and I'm talking about Bill Clinton, was not committed to an ideology. He was not, for example, he was committed to his own popularity, and uh, he seemed to stick his finger, wet his finger and stick it in the wind to discern which way the wind is blowing in terms of popular opinion, and that seemed to be the position he would take. It, it wasn't necessarily locked to any kind of anything else, but you know, what he thought he could achieve. He was a very much of a pragma- pragmatist. So, uh, yeah, unf- What's
3: interesting is uh, you can watch the debates on YouTube, mm-hmm. and I encourage your listeners to, you know, take some time and, and you know, maybe sample them for, for a few minutes anyway because the politics are so different than they are today. And also, you can see how masterful Bill Clinton was in his uh, dominance of the television camera and even the studio audience. He he um, projected a kind of uh, warmness and, and he uh, he was not afraid of, uh, of his fellow human beings. Uh, it, were, uh, it all seems a little bit uh, over-reserved so uh, it, it's well worth watching. And then there's a uh, uh, Jim Lehrer who moderated the results uh, later did a documentary on, on these debates and, and there's a, a text of, of that documentary online and The amount of prep work that Clinton put in vis-a-vis Dole for each of these debates is amazing. Uh, You know, Clinton was uh, as as well rehearsed as uh, any actor in Hollywood for a uh, Broadway play, and it shows uh, on camera. And again, it's a it's a textbook and it's a lesson for uh, politicians today. And I I think the most important lesson Clinton said, uh, "You don't talk about the past." Uh, people assume if you're in office, you know they put you there, and that uh, you're doing a good job. So you talk about the future and what you're going to do for them in the uh, uh, weeks and months ahead,
1: uh-huh. and
3: uh, uh, and always talking about his past the entire time. So that was, you know, it's a pretty uh, amazing piece of history, uh, and again, it's uh, a very useful for for all of us today
1: yeah and yeah I talked to a friend who said he visited with Bill Clinton by accident actually he ran into him and talked to him and he said you know what when I walked away I felt like you know I really liked him he says I wouldn't vote for him but <laughs> he had such personal appeal it was just amazing unlike and again Bob Dole clearly in terms of character his superior Bob Dole was a great man, but uh, certainly not charismatic, and certainly not interesting. And you wouldn't say, hey, you know, I, I want him to be my best friend. That's not Bob Dole.
3: Uh, no, but if uh, I would want to be more like Bob Dole than Bill Clinton. Uh, no question. That's, that's, I mean, he was a very moral uh, man. He was very patriotic. Uh, I think he was a superb union, uh, human being.
1: It, he indeed he didn't was. Have, uh,
3: maybe the, the right staff to help him in a very difficult election.
1: He would Absol- make a great president. Absolutely. I agree. Again, Jim McTague, uh Follow the Leader, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, would make two great Christmas gifts. So uh, uh, think about uh, Jim's books uh, when it comes to holiday gifts. Jim, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Hey, Thank you, Bob. You get people thinking.
1: <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Jim. Well, that, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to take a look and see if I can't figure out what happened here with the commercial breaks. But uh, irrespective of tomorrow, we're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. Boo Mordens will be with us. Seat Motley, the founder and president of Less Government. And my wife, Linda, will be joining us as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.